Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Hadit.com Radio Show. Hadit.com Radio is an in-depth look at all things VA. If you need help with the VA, log on to Hadit.com. Now, here's your host, Gerald Cook. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, on this 13th day of December, 2018. We're here with our co-host, Jay Basser, uh, uh, John Stacy there, and uh, he's out of Kentucky. And today our guest speaker is Dr. Bash, and we're waiting on uh, Bill Crager to get uh, logged in here, but he'll be along directly. And uh, Dr. Bash, how are you doing today? It sounds like you had a... Uh, a lot of trouble out there. Doggone, I hate to hear that. Uh, you're in California there right now. Uh, I hope you can get to yeah. work through that mess. Yeah, we had that big firestorm, you know, lost a bunch of records and part of our office. But one, of the things, one of the things we're working on that I see a lot these days is, has to do with reduction of benefits. You know, are you guys seeing a lot of that reduction stuff going on? Patients talk about it. It seems as though I, I've heard a lot of veterans talking. Uh, it it seems as though every time they reach a hundred percent disability rating uh, through the VA, the the VA switches around and automatically goes into this reduction mode. Anything, any simple thing, anything they can find that will give my excuse to reduce your ratings, your 100% especially, it seems as though they they really latch on to that and, and they're aggressive in, in making a poor veteran's life miserable after he's went through all the hoop to raw to, to even get his rightful benefits or their rightful benefits and oh, it, it's something that shouldn't be going on but yes uh, we've heard of veterans uh, in that uh, situation it's not nice yeah I seem like about 20% of my work now is reductions you know, like a patient will get 100%, and then they'll, um, VA must have some kind of internal audit system, you know, and all of a sudden, like yeah, two maybe. or three weeks later, they'll come through and they'll say, nope, nope, that's wrong, I made a mistake, and they'll, and they'll reduce them back down. And, uh, oh, or that's even, a, they got a quality, that's their quality assurance step, so I think that's what they the right to claim that goes to their quality assurance hand during the people look at it, and they, you know, they kind of read the phone literally the day or see if there's a mistake or see if they can reduce what they will. It's just a, it's just a bureaucratic quality assurance thing, and they'll try to do it with a lot of people. I've seen it, it. It's increased tremendously in the past six months anyway. I think that's right. I think that's right. Like I said, maybe maybe every every fifth case I do now is a reduction case. Mm-hmm. And so I see, them, I see them like in the first couple, three weeks or a month after they get 100%, or I see people that had 100% for a while and all of a sudden they come at them with a reduction. Or I also see a lot of these cases that are like, um, you know, guys are on the fringe for TDIU, so they'll so they'll um, come at them maybe with um, with um, you know 40% or 50% or 60% stuff like that, 
know, just like I think Tom Krieger's trying to call him. He's trying to call me to another number. Mm, okay. But uh, yeah, so anybody from the fringe of uh, have, he should have email with information on that. I, I sent him a copy of it. So if he needs to call in number, he's on the fringe of. Yeah, uh, call in number real quick is uh, the call in number, Gerald. Three four seven. Oh, the call in number is three four seven two three seven four eight one nine. Now this call in number once again is three four seven two three seven. Four eight one nine, and then uh, a lady will talk, and you hit number one, and that'll put you in the queue with us, and we can pick you up there if you have a question or a comment. Yeah, so they're coming out. All these patients that are on the fringe of. Um on the fringe of TDIU, too, you know, so they're kind of undercutting the foundation for the 100% later on. Yeah, the, the, I don't know why they do that. I guess uh, there are some veterans that they feel like they've overrated instead of underrated mm-hmm. and... Uh, and some of them don't put up a fight, though, Doctor. Uh, that's that's the trouble. They they take it, you know, and, and instead of fighting with them. Uh, if you're entitled benefits, doggone it, you ought to get them. Uh, that's my feeling. Yeah, they're doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, you're right. They're doing a lot of stuff with the veteran. You know, the VA is kind of bluffing the veterans, so... For example, when Bill gets on, we get a case we can talk about. But you know, patients will they'll get a letter and they're supposed to wait like 60 days, you know, for that. The next level of of uh, rules for the for the uh, reduction, you know, they'll send letters out like at 55 days and 59 days, and you know, they'll do these reductions without reviewing the record, or they redu- do the reductions without doing the exam. All the different steps that they're supposed to go through for the reduction process. That Bill's going to talk to us about in a little bit. They just skip over and they and they bluff the veterans. So the veteran, all of a sudden, next thing he knows, his checks cut and you know he's like, what happened? I believe Bill's here now. You there, Bill? Am I in? Yeah, yeah in. you're here. Hey. What? <laughs> right. well, welcome, welcome, Bill. Why, thank you. Sorry for being late. I was struggling <laughs> like crazy to get in here. <laughs> yep. So, Bill, I, just, I gave a little preamble about the cases I'm seeing, like I'm seeing these 100% that get reduced like in three or four weeks or the TDIU foundation cases that are like 40% or 60% stuff like that. And I told them about how the VA is kind of bluffing the veterans, like they're giving them reductions with 55 days or 59 days or they're not doing exams, they're not doing the steps that they're supposed to go through. And I told them that you might be able to – we have that one case that we talked about that we just did recently or – you might be able to give us some of the legal points about how the different steps are supposed to go through for reduction, you know. Yes, yes. And um, 
I uh, took the time today to uh, check for any updates in the manual or changes, and I see this part of the manual M21 had revisions in April of this year and late November and, uh, and uh, September as well. Now, I think that the manual now reasonably represents the intent of the law that protects veterans from one, premature reductions, uh, establishes the standards that must be satisfied before a reduction can be implemented, and provides a 60-day period prior to the reduction. And no. Congress enacted that part to give the veteran 60 days to adjust to his reduced income. So right, right. the 60-day so, so notice. Hmm? I told him that a lot. Oh, yes. I told him I've seen about 20% of my workload now has to do with reductions. The manual doesn't say reduce everybody, does it? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Right. Um, right. In, in fact, a typical reduction is entered by a rater because the rater believes that the veteran's condition has improved and no longer satisfies the requirements for the higher reduction. Well, what happens typically, the veteran has some issue pending, maybe a um, claim for unemployability, and he claims a specific disability is causing his problem with employment. Manual requires then that we examine that disability. That examination report gives us a snapshot. It, it says how far the joint bends, typically, and how far the doctor can bend it. And then based on that alone, that exam report comes back in, and it no longer satisfies the requirement for the higher evaluation. So the rater then decides, oh, well, then I have to reduce the evaluation. And in most cases, we are now seeing that 60-day notice happening. But remember, that only applies if it affects money. So if, if a rating is going to reduce a single disability, but it does not affect the combined evaluation, the 60-day notice is not required. Similarly, so I see a lot of that, Bill. I see a lot of that. Yeah, we, a see, we see that. I see, um, see a lot like a guy going for his ankle. Oh, going yeah, for his ankle yeah. and they'll, they'll increase his ankle and they'll decrease his knee at the same time or put his knee into a strain instead of an arthritis and not change his rating, right? That's what we're talking about. Some of that is going on, and, and the regulations and the manual accurately instruct that you do not arbitrarily change a diagnostic code assigned to a disability um, based on a simple finding on an examination. You must review all of the evidence, and, of course, protection applies. If, if a veteran, for whatever reason, by error or otherwise, has been, say, service-connected for arthritis of the spine, let's say, and that 
grant has been in effect for 10 years, that grant of service connection is protected, even if it's wrong. And the VA cannot, cannot sever service connection for that arthritis. Now, let's say the recent examination now comes forward with a different diagnosis, perhaps uh, a lumbosacral strain. Okay? The available rater, the rating, it is then available to the rater to enter a decision adding lumbosacral strain to the arthritis, but they may not sever the arthritis and replace it with lumbosacral strain. And that would apply for a multitude of disabilities and diagnostic codes. Now, yes, back to our topic of reduction. And this, we are often reminded, and the manual, the manual makes clear, that for disabilities that have been in effect for five years or more, there are certain requirements that must be satisfied before a reduction can be made. Now, there is also, even if a disability has been in effect for less than five years, there are still evidentiary standards that must be satisfied in the record before the reduction is made. One of those comes from 4.2 and 4.10 in the regulations. And basically that requirement is that an examination must that you're predicating a reduction on must be as informed as the one that granted it. So if you have a more thorough examination that established, established a 20% evaluation and the new examination establishes only a 10% evaluation, that subsequent examination must be as detailed as the original one. And if it's not, the reduction cannot take place. Secondly, the regulations I quoted earlier, 4.2, 4.10, make clear that even if improvement has occurred, that improvement must be shown to uh, result in the ability to function under the ordinary conditions of life, including employment. So if a veteran has been out of the workplace and not working, how could a rater say that, well, the improvement is achieved under the circumstances of employment? That doesn't make any sense. Under the conditions, ordinary conditions of daily life, it means that the, the individual is active, not resting and recuperating, but actually active in their lifestyle, in the activities that they do, okay? Um, so I never, ever see reductions discussing those issues. And that's where these reductions fail. 
most of my success, I don't, no, I won't say most, much of my success representing cases in the court or at the Board of Veterans' Appeals was overturning reductions because they were not made in accordance with the requirements necessary to satisfy before the reduction is done. Now, uh, the court back in 1993 addressed this in Brown v. Brown at 5 Vet App 413 in 1993. And it's basically the court said what I just said. You've, you've got to show that there's been a material improvement under the ordinary conditions of daily life, including employment. If you can't show that, even if the veteran's immediate um, examination shows improvement, that doesn't justify a reduction. Okay? Um, that's one of the errors that I have seen most often. Now, another point. If a reduction is made and it fails to point to the evidence to justify the reduction in accordance with these rules, it is what the court calls void ab initio. Now, what does that mean? That means from the beginning, okay? And you must reverse and reinstate the evaluation. If the reduction was made in error, then you must first reinstate the evaluation before you do anything else. Then, if VA wants to pursue the question again, then they can undertake development in some cases, not every case. And if then the subsequent evidence demonstrates that a reduction is now justified, a subsequent reduction may be accomplished. But there are oftentimes um, disabilities that really were chronic in nature. And the subsequent development of evidence does not substantiate improvement uh, that's material and sustained and achieved under the ordinary conditions of daily life, including employment. And so um, many times I found myself as a decision review officer, now that the issue has been on appeal for five to ten years, reversing it and saying, here's your money, and now the effect is that your higher evaluation has been in effect for more than five years. We don't have two examinations. Uh, no future examinations are going to be justified. Keep it. Those I often made that decision. Um, and it would have been much better for veterans if those raiders across the country would have paused and paid attention to those rules governing reductions before effectuating it. Bill, why do you mm. think we have such a rash of increasing reductions? you think it's internal auditing, or what do you think? No. No, the um, – I saw no um, effort on the part of central office to uh, achieve widespread reductions as a goal. Um, 
rather the changes that I've seen in the manual have been an effort of central office to bring all the variety of authorities into one source so that everyone works off the same page. In some cases, that, that's helpful. In other cases, it turns out to be harmful to the veteran uh, because of the various authorities might, might have in the past permitted raiders around the country to apply different interpretations. Whereas once everything becomes incorporated into the manual, it's binding on all of those employees around the country, and they must comply with what the manual instructs. Now that the manual on reductions is uh, pretty accurate, okay, I would hope that we would see some improvement in this area and these um, premature or unjustifiable reductions would decrease in number. And I hope there's uh, training activity going on to um, try to make that clear. Uh, uh, Bill, uh, now, yes, sir. Could, could this be like some Raiders, you know, they're trying to score extra points or get a little bit larger bonus. Uh, could this be Raiders kind of going off on their own own little trail here and say, hey, I'm going to try this, try that, and if I'm successful, I I get some bonus points here. Or uh, it's obvious that uh, they're out on the limb, in other words. They're, they're saying, look, if I can reduce this guy, I've saved this much money for the VA, and... Uh, I believe I can, and and use his own instead of following the regulations to the letter as he should, or or using some common sense here that it's not a a practical idea even to try to reduce someone. Uh, um, I mean, you know, this is across the country. You're talking about a lot of different writers now got their own yeah, opinions. Yeah. Yeah, and and the the effort. Let me take you back um, some years. I get specific here, but General Accounting Office did a um, a widespread study around the country of rating decisions, and uh, what the data showed was that where you live in the country affects the outcome. And I agree. Yeah. The, the study showed that uh, sort of a swath across the uh, middle, uh, well, let me say what, what probably generically might return to as right, referred to as the Rust Belt from uh, like Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, out to Newark, New Jersey. In that, now I'm just being general, okay? I'm not being specific. But in that general vicinity of the country, your claim was less likely to be granted. And if granted, your compensation was likely to be lower than the rest of the country. So there was a disparity in geography. There was a geographical difference in the outcome. VA made a, a proper decision to try 
to reduce that inconsistency and to improve consistency across the nation by centralizing the authorities, uh, by trying to reduce the flexibility available to individual raiders around the country and trying to get everybody to march to the same music. Um, And I witnessed uh, massive changes in the manual where the central office was routinely going through what we used to use in the past as guidance, things like um, uh, let's see, what do we used to call those? Um, compensation service bulletins. There were bulletins. That fast, letter, fast letters. Uh, fast letters, yes. Um, a lot of those kinds of documents were being used in a lot of different ways by a lot of different people around the country. And what happened was VA rescinded all of them, rescinded all these different sources of rules, and instead incorporated a a short summary into what they determined to be the appropriate sections of the manual. And in in this way, um, make it easier for the individual raider to find an authority to say, here's the guidance that applies to this type of a claim. I saw no evidence around the country. And, and, you know, for the years I was a decision review officer at what was now called the Appeals Resource Center, you know, we, we reviewed appeals from all over the country that were remanded by the Board of Veterans Appeals for some deficiency usually. And so I got a very broad experience with regional office decisions all over the country. And those decisions generally, when they were wrong, were wrong because of a lack of understanding of either the development necessary to be accomplished before making the decision or a lack of familiarity with the rules governing that decision. I didn't see any evidence of anyone purposely wanting to harm veterans. or, And there's certainly no incentive available to a raider for granting less benefits. Um, the central office never, and as an employee, VA never evaluated me based on my percentage of grants versus denials. That was never an issue. Um, now, I kept track of it myself, and, and the software available in the VA's uh, electronic systems uh, gives you an opportunity to actually see how you're doing. You know, um, and I was, I was granting uh, maybe 58 to 60% of the appeals. Um, the office average was somewhere around 25%. Um, and and I, that is due strictly to experience that I just simply had a much broader and longer experience than my colleagues. And I understood facts that they didn't understand or understood some of the court uh, precedents that must be applied. Um, 
and and that's why I was able to to grant more. Um, I might give you a brief example. Um, case came to my desk, a uh, Vietnam veteran um, claiming diabetes. Been denied for 10 years because his individual service records did not reflect that he was stationed in Vietnam. So we couldn't look through his service records and say, okay, here we see you were stationed in Vietnam. But his claim was that he landed at Da Nang, Vietnam, and transferred to a shuttle plane and flew out to a carrier, it was the USS Coral Sea, at Yankee Station, which is off the coast of Da Nang. Um, the veteran's statement, the sworn statement, and it provides evidence that he set foot in Vietnam. Lay evidence, according to the manual, lay evidence is to be accepted unless there's evidence to the contrary. Okay, so if a veteran says, I set foot in Vietnam, our job is to compare what he told us with the circumstance, place, and type of service and decide whether that's consistent or not consistent with his experience. Um, well, I was quest- I granted it, and I was questioned about that, all right? And um, said, well, why did you grant this? And I said, well, why shouldn't I? I said, well, the service records don't show that he set foot in Vietnam. I said, well, what do you know? You know he was in California on day one, yeah? Yeah. You know days later he's on the deck of an aircraft carrier in Yankee Station off the coast of Vietnam, right? Right. I said, well, how'd he get there? He said, I don't know. I said, well, you should know. If you're going to do this work, you should know how people got to an aircraft carrier in Yankee Station. The routine was you would land at the name what was servicing Yankee Station. And they routinely had shuttle aircraft and boats going back and forth between Da Nang and Yankee Station, transferring mail, transferring personnel, replenishing supplies. All of that was going on from Da Nang. So his statement is consistent with history. And there's nothing else in the record that shows it didn't happen. <laughs> so he got his check. <laughs> so there, there, were times, there were times when I was questioned, you know, um, but uh, I was never uh, found, uh, you know, rewarded for denying claims. That, that's just, I never saw that happen to anybody. Um, there were rewards for deciding a lot of claims. So how fast an individual works might affect their opportunity for a bonus. Um, but not the, the grant denial ratio. Mm-hmm. You know, that forensic thing you did with the analysis is, reminds me of how we do things with the brain with multiple sclerosis, you know? Like we had patients that had lost their hearing or change in their vision, and we go, well, what does the MRI scan show? It shows a little lesion in the place that he had the loss of vision or the hearing, right? We had cases like that. It's yeah. the same, same kind of thing. Like, how does, how does hearing loss happen? Well, it happened because if it's not a MS, the brain. then what is it? <laughs> Right, exactly. Right. And, you know, how and how can we tell, you know? Um, 
Mm-hmm. And, and what I found distressing many times, um, I, would, I would be getting medical opinions, and, and in great numbers these opinions are coming from physicians' assistants, and they would just say no, and they would just point to some literature, and literature would say, you know, the, the most frequent cause of condition A is, well, I don't know, age, let's say, for example. And, well, okay, that doesn't tell me how you're able to determine whether this individual case is a result of being part of a minority of people who are affected versus the majority of people who are suffering with an age-related condition. Your medical opinion has to explain to me why this patient's experience is not in the minority. And the court, I didn't, wasn't planning on bringing that up, so I didn't look it up. But early on in the court's jurisprudence, the court made that clear. If, for example, the opinion says uh, 30%, uh, you know, 70% of these conditions are age-related, okay, the court found that, well, okay, if, if for example, the patient is um, uh, in that group, how do you know whether he's in the 70% or the 30%? What, what do you point to? And how do you explain it? And I think and when the court ruled in Nieves-Rodriguez that the, that the rationale for the opinion and, and the why is the most important um, aspect of a, of a medical opinion and how we gauge the value of that opinion is, um, is, is predicated on reasons being offered. That's, that's and Bill, that same, so very important. That same logic you use with the man, you know, the question of why, why do you think he set foot in Vietnam? And it's the same kind of logic because that's the way that the history went and that's the way the logic goes for the transportation pathway. And the same thing mm-hmm. in medicine, that's the way the logic goes for the medical pathways or the neurologic pathways or whatever. It's the same kind of reasoning. Sure. Like, like any analysis that you're attempting to do in life, basically, you're saying, okay, here's some evidence supporting one side and here's some evidence supporting the other side and let's see, which one, which way should we go and why? Well, you know, if, if um, oh, I, I just now recalled the case you were just, asking about uh, it was hearing and uh, you and I overturned an opinion of a department head of a uh, college of neurology <laughs> because mm-hmm. he simply got his facts wrong he was he was suggesting that this uh, individual's problems with sinusitis and uh, upper respiratory infection was affecting his hearing as an explanation for why his hearing was being um, different at different times in service records. And what I pointed out simply was that, um, no, that's exactly wrong. Um, if, if you have an infection, hearing loss is going to be flat. It's going to be across the board because all frequencies are affected by infection uh, that impairs the ability of hearing. Whereas in this case, um, this veteran's hearing not only was not flat, it was variable at various times, and the times that he suffered with problems with hearing was not coincident with the periods that he was having infection. And the Board of Veterans' Appeals went with us and said, yeah, 
yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, and and what I had done in that case, I had I had seen peculiar findings, things that are unusual regarding his hearing in his service records. And I looked at his MRI, and I did some reading on my own to say, okay, what part of the brain is this, and does it affect hearing? And I thought it probably was, since it was posterior. And, and um, so that's when I got a hold of Dr. Bash, and, and he pointed out, yes, yes, absolutely. That is the area of the brain that affects hearing. <laughs> so, so we were there. We were good. <laughs> that, that happened. <laughs> I'm really glad it did. <laughs> Those were good days, Doc. Yep. Good still, well, back to, yep. Well, we're still still doing cases. We had that reduction case recently, Bill. You want to give us some de- details on that one? Because the same kind of teamwork that requires. Yes. Uh, that, I, let's see, if I'm thinking of the proper case, I think this is the one where the VA – uh, I think looked at treatment records to reach a conclusion that a tumor, a brain tumor, was in remission. And, in fact, when you reviewed the imaging, uh, it clearly demonstrated that it was not in remission. It was quiescent but not in remission, and it was active. And the poor veteran was facing a reduction from 100% to 0%, which is wrong in and of itself, but... That's a different argument, but the the uh, proposal to reduce was incorrect. Um, and again, this proposal to reduce was a result of accepting evidence that was incomplete. And once Dr. Bash took a look at the records and and saw what the facts were medically we were able to bring that to the attention of VA. And they, uh, they quite promptly reversed their position on that, didn't they? That was like, um, yep. what, less than two months? Yeah, so that, yeah it was pretty quick. So that, that, concept, that concept, we had another case where it was 59 days. And the concept is that sometimes they'll match up my DDQ or my medical analysis with the clinical situation, and then we'll take that and see how it compares with Bill's knowledge of the laws and kind of meld those two things together, right, Bill? Yeah. My philosophy when I was a representative um, was always I want to make the Raiders' job as easy as possible because I'm going to give them the evidence they need to make an accurate decision, and I'm going to point to the authorities so they know where to look it up if they need to, you know, if they're not familiar with this part of the rule or the law, here's where you can look it up, you know, so that, so that I would always present a case in that way. You know, even back in the 1970s, when I was way out in the field, <laughs> all the way back then, um, I would make a point of doing all that development work and getting all those documents, getting all those treatment records, witness statements, um, putting it into as a complete package. Decades before, VA came up with what they now call a decision-ready claim. Um, that's, that's the way I was doing business decades ago. And if, if everyone could do that, um, I truly believe we could help. Um, I truly believe that VA would be able to achieve its mission more accurately and faster with our help. Um, 
And I think if, if every veteran and every representative were to focus on that mission, um, everyone would benefit. Well, Bill, you make it look easy, but you know, in order to do that, you have to have a really good, deep knowledge of the law, and you have to have a good, deep knowledge of the medicine, because you have to figure out what pieces to pluck and, and cut and paste, you know? Um, yes. You, it takes experience. Um, you, you, can't, you can't walk in off the street and start making these rating decisions and, and be accurate. Now, let me say, VA has, has made a concerted effort to make it as simple as possible by creating a software program in the computer that the rater is required to use that will tell the rater what to do and how to decide the claim. Um, but when it comes to evaluation of disabilities, there are many findings, there are many um, effects of disability that require an understanding you have to understand how a disability affects a person's life in order to determine how disabling it is. And I, I was somewhat uncomfortable. Um, VA has what they call the, um, um, excuse me for getting the language just now, but there was a software program that says this is how disabled the patient is. And basically, you transfer the findings on the DBQ into the software, and the software will tell you what disability evaluation to assign, even for mental illness. I've always struggled with that um, because there is a built-in um, bias. Now, I don't... I don't intend to suggest that that's intentional. But when you're evaluating mental illness, you have to consider all of the patient's symptoms. But in the evaluation builder, that's the, so that's the title of the software program I couldn't remember a minute ago. The evaluation builder only prompts for those examples of, system, of symptoms that exist in the rating schedule for mental illness, you know, depression, uh, sleep disturbance, hallucinations, okay? Um, so if a patient has intrusive recollections, flashbacks, nightmares that are impeding their ability, if, if a veteran is sitting at a desk and he's trying to do some work and suddenly something triggers a memory, a sound maybe. Um, maybe the individual is startled by something. And the same feelings they had when they were startled by a bullet whizzing past their head comes back. And it forces them to stop working and deal with that issue again. That interferes with their ability to produce with speed, with accuracy, um, with consistency. It interferes with that. And yet, these symptoms I described, so typical of PTSD, are not in the rating schedule. And so he could be suffering with flashbacks four times a day, forcing him to go 
sit someplace quiet and calm himself down, and he gets no compensation for it. And so in order to comply with the court order in the case called Mauerhan, um, Mauerhan ruled that when the rating schedule says symptoms uh, such as hallucinations and, and depression and sleep disturbance, that's not an all-inclusive list. So if the patient is also suffering flashbacks, intrusive recollections, um, I have to compensate him for that. Problem is the manual, the evaluation builder software, and the training never tell the rater how to compensate the veteran for flashbacks and nightmares and intrusive recollections. Um, so um, the you have to be somewhat knowledgeable of that, and, and I don't think I ex- I've encountered maybe three raiders ever that could give me a satisfactory explanation as to how to deal with that issue. <laughs> okay. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm really not um, certain that veterans with PTSD are being fully compensated for the severity of what that condition does to their life um, and their earnings. And so that's, that's why it's important to me to, to share that information. Um, now I will, I'll explain what I did in that circumstance. The evaluation builder for mental disorders gives you the opportunity to click up one evaluation. So if the evaluation builder considering symptoms that are specified uh, justify a 50% evaluation in accordance with the computer program, I have the authority to click it up to 70 and put in an explanation. And I did that frequently and regularly and I explained how the additional symptoms are also affecting, which are not contemplated by um, those symptoms described on the examination or not, not described in the software. And I was never challenged. No one ever challenged my decision to increase those evaluations. Um, and yet it was made clear in the training that whenever you do click up one, central office will review that decision for accuracy. And in all those years, none of my grants were ever questioned by central office. So I'm satisfied I found a satisfactory solution. And I tried to um, share that with other raiders and tried to help them uh, persuade them to take similar decisions. And generally speaking, the raiders were reluctant and hesitant for fear that they would be found to be in error for using symptoms not in the schedule. Um, so that, that will remain a problem for a while, and, and I hope that that will someday improve. Um, but now. Um, so, Bill, hey Bill just, I'm going to go yeah, back, to, yeah. back, to reduc- back to reduction again a little bit, you know. So that mm-hmm, guy, yeah, yeah. the other case we had, the guy with the 59 days, I think he was diabetes and the secondary conditions were the part that they didn't take in consideration, right? The fact that yes, they had yes. some... Then when evaluating to, diabetes, the manual expressly says you must consider all of the complications of diabetes. So is there peripheral neuropathy? Is there uh, nephropathy? Is there um, diabetic retinopathy? Okay, whatever. 
And diabetes can cause a lot of complications, a lot of effect, a lot of bodily systems. All of those must be identified. So if we're if we're adjudicating an initial disability claim for um, diabetes, we provide a general examination, and that physician then identifies the complications, and then we get specialty exams in by specialists in each of those areas, be it um, ophthalmology, neurology, um, urology, okay, whatever is effective. Um, now, so this remember we mentioned, this yeah, yeah, and and uh, if if you know the rating is proposed to be reduced, the first mistake if if you tell the veteran your reduction is effective in 59 days, you're wrong. VA says we're reducing it in 59 days you know, on the calendar. That's an error, okay? and it has to be reversed and reinstated. Then if VA wants to propose again uh, with the proper evidence, uh, give them another 60 days, not 59, and uh, you know, have at it <laughs> or try. <laughs> but like I said earlier, typically um, – these reductions are effectuated with limited evidence and, and less than fully satisfactory evidence. And so um, once that uh, reduction is reversed and the, uh, initial, the prior evaluation reinstated, um, when you fully develop the evidence, that typically reveals that it's worse, not better. <laughs> it's not improved. Yeah, so Bill, we've seen <laughs> historical cases where a patient was like that maybe and then they try to reduce them to 50%, and then maybe I, I came in and did a DBQ, and then he, we found that he didn't, couldn't walk, he used, used wheelchair, crutches, falling, and the patient actually ended up with maybe SMC-level um, mm-hmm. benefits mm-hmm. when they proposed to reduce them to 50%. Yes, and, and, and um, during my time as a decision review officer, many, 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 People kept coming to me um, and asking for my advice on special monthly compensation. Um, <laughs> even uh, Secretary uh, Shokin's office, an attorney working for him, came to me. He says, "I called, mm-hmm. I called my friends at compensation service, and all three of them told me to call you." <laughs> so when. Uh, We'll probably have to do uh, three or four presentations on SMC because that is extraordinarily complicated. But um, there are some clear thresholds that are easy to reach uh, with with uh, proper evidence. We need to do that. Really, the SMC, you know, the SMC really conceptually gets into this whole idea of secondary conditions. You know, that's what and that's what Raiders. Mm-hmm. I mean, medicine teaches us about that, but the Raiders don't understand the medical secondary complications and that's what SMC tries to sort of work on. So it's a weakness. It's really a weakness yeah, because it's complicated. That, uh, that is a sacrifice made by trying to uh, create consistency across the board uh, by simplifying the rating decision. If the doctor didn't say it, if the record doesn't show it, uh, don't address it. Move on to the next case. Um, I think in some yep. of the debates that I had um, as a decision review officer, it was typically, well, why are you asking for this additional development? The, the, 
I remember one case very distinctly. It says, it, it shows that he's entitled to 100%. I said, yeah, but I can't determine his SMC. So I've got to have that exam. I said, what I really want to do, I want to give him his 100% now, get his exam, and then see what the SMC would be. But the manual expressly prohibits that, so I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And so, so the, uh, um, so the uh, paperwork trail goes, you know, you have 65,000 codes of medicine. They boil down <laughs> to about 2,000 codes in the VA, right? So you have a, a, a pyramid mm-hmm. going. And then those pyramids down to like 70 DBQs. So you're asking one, one doctor to try and analyze a DBQ when his colleague that's a specialist might have six or seven years training in that small little mm-hmm. subsection of the secondary condition and all that stuff gets eliminated because the DBQ is so narrow. Yes, yes. And then as medical knowledge evolves and the terminologies used in the practice of medicine continue to change and evolve, uh, we're still looking at essentially a rating schedule. Well, it's been some adjustments, but, I mean, the rating schedule, you know, this since, what, um, well, the current version is 1930. Uh, I think the initial version was probably about there 1917 or 1918 or something, you know, but. <laughs> yeah. 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 So specialized examinations are really important and to not be able to do those limits the reading. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'd like to offer this one quote. Um, Judge Peach uh, at the uh, court uh, made a, made a, a single judge memorandum decision. Okay. Um, it's not a precedent decision. It's a memorandum decision, which means this is what the judge is telling us in this case. But what she's telling us in this case is that the law, when it comes to the evaluation of disability, has already been well-defined in the court's precedent. So we don't have to revisit that. We don't need a panel to establish the precedent. The precedent already exists. And in this case, the BVA decision failed to comply with the governing precedents of the court. And listen to this marvelous quote. I think, it's, I think it just says it so well. By limiting its analysis to the relationship between the appellant's pain and his limitation of motion, the board has considered only the effect of the appellant's pain on his, quote, normal excursion. Because it did not fully account for the evidence that the appellant's disorder has restricted his ability to sit, stand, bear weight, run, squat, and climb, it has essentially not analyzed whether the appellant's disorder causes functional losses in the areas of strength, speed, and coordination. The court reminds the board that the essence of the regulations and the court precedent in this area is that a claimant's lifestyle and earning capacity may be severely restricted by functional loss called by a joint disorder, and the claimant should be compensated accordingly even if range of motion testing conducted in a sterile medical environment does not indicate that the appellant's disorder is severe. What a marvelous quote. And that's, that, that's yep. I remind myself constantly, we evaluate the postman's knee at the end of the day of delivering mail, <laughs> not after he's been right. sitting in a waiting room for half a day. <laughs> yeah. and, you, and you don't just, you know, that, that quote can be read again because it's so important. 
you don't just base it on only on the range of motion. You base it on all the other parts of his life that are affected by his inability to do those things. You know, yes. That, um, that kind of question you know, is not really on the four, yeah. The regulation, 4.40, you know, is uh, where Judge Peach was, was quoting the necessity to evaluate a disability, uh, not just on a sterile examination and range of motion, but mm-hmm. on uh, strength, speed, coordination, um, and functional impairment. Um, it's challenging. It's challenging. And uh, by mechanizing the, yeah, by mechanizing it with DBQs, um, what I'm accustomed to seeing uh, for years, uh, you know, there'll be three sections or four. One, how far can the doctor move the joint? Two, how far can the patient move the joint? When does pain have an onset? And after you move it three times, what's the patient's range of motion? And what's the range of motion going to be after functional use? Okay. And invariably on that last question, the doctor simply says it's not possible to know because he hasn't been active today at the examination. So I can't predict. I can't know. I can't tell what his uh, restriction of motion would be after uh, prolonged functional use. And so we don't have that evidence. And so the veteran doesn't get compensated for that in most cases. Um, So there's another issue. But if if we're talking about reduction, if we're talking about reduction and these um, factors that the that Judge Fish was quoting were not discussed in the examination, I believe a good argument is you haven't satisfied the requirements of 4.40, 4.10, and 4.2, and therefore you can't effectuate a reduction. So there. <laughs> uh, Hope I didn't uh, lose anybody. Well, it's like the classic example that his range of motion is normal, but when he stands up, he falls down. You know, he can't <laughs> use it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And that range of motion okay. is throughout all the DBQ, throughout all the DBQs, so it's such an important concept to think about. DBQs have been serving a good purpose uh, in the main for being able to accelerate the process, and to develop consistency. Um, I I believe the VA will continue to evolve these DBQs over time and um, make them more helpful. For now, be on the alert. Make sure you're getting, um, getting it done properly. Boy, our, our host is a little quiet tonight. <laughs> I yeah, I was, I was just thinking about them DBQs. Uh, uh, for some reason, I just can't seem to, to get along with them. I mean, uh, uh, like you say, uh, possibly the VA is going to update them to the point where they're 
they're a little bit more user-friendly. The way they are, it seems to me that uh, uh, they try to steer you in one direction or another. I don't know. Um, so there is the focus. It, it's um, hard to answer yeah. questions, yes or no, or, or mm-hmm. you know, the generalized answer. Sometimes they're pretty complex. And yeah. to turn one over to a doctor and have them fill it out uh, just don't seem satisfactory yeah. to me. Yeah, out, of, out of curiosity, I went through and counted up the number of questions and sub-question parts on, on the spine DBQ. There's over 170 different types of question answers that the doc has to do just on the spine DBQ. <laughs> wow. Yeah. wow. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to count that up when I started getting that little bank. But it, as a rule, it, it's, you know, you go out here to your regular doctor like you go to, um, it's hard to get them to take time to fill them out properly. <laughs> Most yeah, of them just check a box or two and sign And And some are, are hesitant to involve themselves with VA because um, there are a few that really understand um, VA and what's being asked of them, and others are afraid to um, offer some observations that, are, that they're uncomfortable making, uh, that they, they would be uncomfortable in, in assessing. Uh, they don't know how, um, so it's it's understandable, and and hopefully that that'll improve over time. VA does make revisions to these DBQs. It has happened. I've seen it, and uh, hopefully they'll continue to improve over time. Each of those each of those questions, Bill, could have a hundred or I don't know twenty or some number of precedent cases behind it. You know, legally, <laughs> the doc has no idea what's going on with right. One hundred and seventy different That's questions right. with. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, could you could you imagine me as a as a reader um, sending it back to the uh, doctor who did it and saying, well, you know, your discussion really doesn't satisfy the requirements uh, discussed in Mesoquinonia as Vivek Donald. Exactly. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> okay. The doctor says what? Huh? <laughs> Is that Harrison's textbook of medicine? Do you say Harrison's textbook of medicine? No, I'm talking about some legal case. The doctor has no yeah. idea. No. Mm-hmm. Well, they can end up in a quagmire. They ain't got time for. They don't want to fool with. Uh, my last DBQs that they wanted me to fill out, I just turned over to my primary care team and care of it. Uh, uh, what they put down, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that works out for you. I'd, 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 I'd rather put it in the hands of somebody like Dr. Bash who knows what he's doing. You know? Yeah, that's true. I should have done that. <laughs> but I'd like to see him to uh, uh, revise the DBQs and and uh, uh, get them in better working, uh, where it's easier to work with them. And uh, I hope it happens I like the old, pretty, pretty soon. I like the old yeah. DA forms. They had some narrative. I think more narrative would be good on the DBQs because those old forms, Bill, they used to have when they had VA exams yes. and they had 
narrative space, which is kind of and nice. more more big empty blocks for the doctor to just write in observations, yeah. opinions, and discussions yeah. stuff like yeah. that. I, I found those to be very helpful, and and yeah. nothing precludes the doctor from doing that. It's just that uh, they're being except for the little happy you know, space they give you at the bottom. Except for right. the whole half the space you at the bottom of the exactly. But I mean, you know, when when the court came out with its ruling in in Kuwait, you know, that, that back in 2016, saying, you know, well, you you really haven't, um, the DBQ really didn't describe limitations on weight bearing and pain on weight bearing, and so oh. uh, VA revised the DBQ and specifically prompts the examiner now to describe pain on weight bearing. Or not weight versus not weight bearing, and versus the other yeah. limb if appropriate. So that's, yeah, that's an example of improving yeah. it to try to satisfy the yeah. evolving legal requirements. Yeah. Well, you think if there's well, an exam back to reduction again, if they reduce some of the say they give him twenty percent five years ago the DBQ and now they're trying to reduce him to ten percent without a DBQ, that's not satisfactory comparison, right? That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, you know, that uh, we mentioned um, 3.344, um, which governs reductions, and, and it requires an examination as thorough as the one that granted it, uh, you know, for disabilities that have been in effect for five years or more. And uh, if the... Um, the two-exam requirement can be satisfied by treatment record. So so you can look at a treatment record and compare it with an examination, and that's the equivalent of two exams. But treatment records typically are not going to describe uh, degrees of range of motion with a goniometer, you know. Think of it as a protractor telling you how far it's bending. Um, it's not going to describe uh, additional functional loss due to pain, <laughs> okay? Um, you typically don't find those in treatment records. So I, I, if, if the examination or, or the treatment records don't show these findings that are required now, um, I wouldn't use them. No, I wouldn't use them. I'd say, nope, I don't have two exams. Um, and oh, by the way, by the time if I were to try to set you up for an exam, by the time it came back and I tried to adjudicate it, the five years will have expired. So I'm uh, applying 3.44 just make it permanent. <laughs> yeah. Some common sense. It's particularly true with with some very chronic uh, malignancies, um, you know, CLL. Um, chronic lymphocene. Uh, <clears throat> um, you know, you, you, they might be quiescent. They might not be increasing. The symptomatologies might be managed, but that doesn't mean it's not an active cancer and, and the veteran is not entitled to 100%. Yes, he is. You know, so, mm-hmm. um, and no future exams are scheduled for some of these chronic uh, malignancies like that. They often, That's miss the the secondary complication. they often miss the secondary complications of those two, like renal failure, radiation-induced necrosis, and bladder, yeah. bowel dysfunction, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, cancers. yeah. And in the interest of speed, the radar uh, sometimes is not digging deep enough to find those. Um, 
you know, and you know, if uh, if an issue is on appeal, evaluation of one disability, uh, typically you're going to get that one disability evaluated, unless you claim that it's causing secondary conditions. Um, and that's why I, I would have probably a larger point total per case because uh, whenever I saw a complication, I would take jurisdiction on it and evaluate it up if the evidence is adequate to do so. Um, but then I had a mountain of experience, so I could I could move things much quicker. Um, and the uh, back to the re- back to the reduction again. They can reduce the mm-hmm. they can reduce the primary thing, but they don't consider the secondaries as part of the reduction process, and so they miss out on a lot of things. Yeah, it, it's um, you know it, it's uh, a matter of uh, identifying the issues. And wow, without getting specific, the, the issues include those secondary conditions. Um, and, and they, they need to be addressed in a rating when you're evaluating the primary condition, um, un- unless it's just not shown. If it's shown in the record, yeah. So do you think the new year, 2019, is going to be a better year for veterans as far as the... Uh, uh, claims process is going. I hope so. Um, I, I think we've done um, a lot of changes and addressed addressed millions of claims uh, in the past several years that had been languishing for a long time. Um, my fear now is for appeals. Um, rather significant percentage of those uh, claims that used to be considered part of the claim backlog and are no longer considered part of the backlog in claims are now on appeal. And that's why Congress, uh, you know, enacted legislation to improve the appeals process and to help um, because if things continued as they were, uh, the appeals pending could not be adjudicated within the predictable lifespan of the veterans with appeals claims pending. Okay, uh, so something had to be done. My fear is that the uh, expeditious process um, will be harmful to some veterans because if you elect a um, prompt review, uh, you're you're basically inviting VA to decide the case on the evidence at hand. And most veterans, in my experience, don't have a good understanding of what evidence is necessary to prevail on appeal. They think they have a good case. They think they just need to get it in the right hands to decide it their way. And I think that impression is somewhat naive. I think they don't understand that it requires uh, significant medical evidence, and, and that's, that's probably the, the biggest issue facing our appeals, is getting the right medical evidence for the adjudicator. Um, you do that, you have a chance, but if you take the, the, the ramp 
and go fast for a fast decision, uh, you risk um, losing it because it's not been fully developed. Usually, I, one study I recall, one study I recall, um, VA was analyzing remanded appeals to find out why there were so many remands. And the result was that 30%, that's nearly a third of all appeals that were remanded, were remanded because the regional office did not complete the development in accordance with the rules already telling them what to do. They were not completing that development. Um, so if we uh, know also, that, mm-hmm. yeah, if we know that, then, then go ahead, Doc. There's also, also, also an undercurrent of using a lot of nurse practitioners and physician assistants in those DBQ and some of those different parts of the evaluation. So those people are not as well trained as the doctor and definitely not as a specialist. And so they're not even going to think about bringing up the issues that might be pertinent to the claim or the rating in those evaluations. Yeah, and and the instructions to those folks is generally stick to the script. You know, don't go off script. Um, we're not asking you... If his uh, back is causing depression, don't offer it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the uh, I, I think where where most important is when we're trying to uh, understand the etiology of a condition and its potential for a relationship to military service. Um, I want to hear more than what I was getting in those medical opinions. I want a better in-depth analysis, not just a something rather superficial. Um, and I, I remember one case, for example, the um, that was an asbestos case, and um, the individual had, after naval service, uh, worked in a shipyard and had gotten uh, compensation from workers' compensation for asbestos-related illness. And uh, we were in the VFW hall at one time. I said, weren't you in the Navy? Yeah. You know, you're on file with VA. So we did, you know. And uh, yeah, the, the, the um, denial was basically predicated on the simple fact that he got a workers' compensation claim. And um, I had argued in that case, and eventually the court remanded it. Um, I said, well, you know, the workers' compensation claim was, was presumptive. They did not analyze all potential exposures. It was simply um, a class action, in essence, uh, with an attorney who had been handling thousands of, of such claims. And they didn't analyze the etiology. They presumed that it was due to work in the shipyard when they granted the workers' comp. They didn't, they didn't ask about the Navy. They didn't know about the Navy. Okay? Point two, it takes decades for asbestos-related disease to develop in most cases. And so that would point to an earlier exposure as opposed to the shipyard work. And um, they just blew it off. Uh, just medical opinion was just basically, well, no, he got, he got workers' comp, never mind. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I need a better so analysis. Bill, so, mm-hmm. so Bill, the analogous case is the guy out of service, parachutist and gets in a car accident and then breaks his back, you know? 
and the VA will say then that the car accident was the cause, but then if you go back and look at it, you might find, once again, x-ray changes of arthritis that take decades or many years to form, formulate the same kind of Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay, so he was in a car accident, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, uh, and they did the imaging at that time, and it shows very severely advanced degenerative changes. Well, that didn't happen in a couple of months. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I, I recall one um, similar case. A fellow had a Jeep accident in the Army. A uh, decade later, had a lifting injury at the post office and got workers' comp at the post office. And uh, the opinion from the physician assistant, uh, the examiner, was that, no, it's less likely related to the military because he injured at the post office. That <laughs> didn't answer the question. <laughs> you still need to tell me, um, you know, how can we know to what extent that um, subsequent lifting injury uh, represent intercurrent injury or progression of the old injury? And um, the, the neurosurgeon who did the surgery came in and opined favorably, and I sided with the neurosurgeon. <laughs> yeah. yeah another, another place that happens is with surgeries. An old case where the guy had an injury, and then he had surgery in the VA, and then he had surgery outside the VA, and surgery inside the VA, and surgery outside the VA. Mm. So, of course, the VA said that the outside surgery caused the problems, so, you know, because those symptoms are getting worse. But you go back, same kind of thing, go back at the imaging, go back to the very beginning, you see after that very first VA surgery, there was some nerve root scarring, which is kind of a subtle thing. And that was persistent throughout all the subsequent surgeries, and that was his root problem. So yeah. it just gets back to close analysis of the data and the facts and look at whether the guy was in Penang or whether he was... You know, asbestos on outside or inside, just about a careful analysis of what the what the facts are. Mhm. Mhm. Well, it's hard to go back. What What if an, a veteran has a blood disorder? Uh, how do you? How's a veteran? Uh, how would a veteran be able to prove up it was um, caused by in-service? Uh, something Exposure happened in-service. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because uh, that's, that's medical question. That's a, that's, a, that's a tough one there, I think. Yeah, well, some of that um, but yeah, you, you take and you look at what are all the known risk factors for that particular blood disorder. Okay. Um, and how, what, what would suggest in this record an association to an event or exposure in service versus uh, genetics? And how do you know? Um, it's unique to each case. So I'll do you know, like the age of the patient or family history. But also sometimes it boils down to the idea of this legal concept of it's impossible to tell, right, Bill? So mm-hmm. medicine's yeah. not perfect yet. We don't know 
exactly what it's exposed to. And so if the doctor, in my opinion, says that it's impossible for me to tell whether it was due to his exposure in Vietnam or due to his exposure post-service, then Ty mm-hmm. goes the runner. So he can explain some of that a little better from a legal standpoint. Yeah, that, that's basically it. And they say, well, here's, you know, maybe, maybe uh, some research has been done, and it says, uh, you know, following um, exposure to um, contaminated water from cleaning solvents. <laughs> okay. Um, Camp Lejeune there. Um, following that, uh, people have an increased rate of occurrence of certain well, cancers. Okay. Um, okay. Well, correlation doesn't always equate to causation, but how do we know? Well, there's probably some research out in the field that says, okay, this particular chemical causes these genetic mutations, okay, and and they gradually develop into neoplasms of some sort. Uh, that's uh, okay. Well, how do we know if it was that exposure or some other exposure? Is there a average time period involved with these things or or what? And you know, we'll have an opinion, and one will say, well, no, because it was a long time after, and the other one says, yes, because it takes a long time to develop. Okay. Chai goes to the run. You know? Um, yeah, it's... it's uh, yeah, well, that's that's so and we... <clears throat> we have a lot of these burn pit uh, veterans that... Uh, I think more and more is, are showing up with um, many uh, different types of disorders from what I'm reading. And it it, it appears as though uh, they're having a difficult time with their claims because the VA don't, uh, for whatever reason, don't want to accept the fact that possibly they um, their disorders and a lot of them's cancers um, uh, was was caused by their their uh, uh, connection with the burn pit. So you know that covered a lot large area and a lot of veterans, I imagine. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, Absolutely. from a medical standpoint, what I do is I try and boil it down to some kind of a chemical that I can link it to, you know. And so Bill was just talking about the camp using water and the solvents, you know. And solvents are everywhere. We use them in the war zone. We use them in peacetime. And, and so those burn pits had a lot of solvents in there, a lot of TCE, and a lot of the analysis shows TCE. So I, I look at it from a TCE standpoint, whether it's aerosolized or whether you drink it. And if you use TCE as your common denominator, you can link it mm. to a lot of different cancers, and then you get into this idea of it's impossible to tell whether it's TCE or something else, and a lot of those cases could be granted on that basis. Yes, I interviewed a uh, doctor that was there at one time. He had a uh, crew under him there working in the burn pits, and he was telling us that... <clears throat> The mask they wore was only good down to two microns, but the contamination they were receiving was in 
in one micron. So uh, I guess a whole lot of them got affected. Yeah, Yeah, that, you know, (laughs) not particularly effective. It's what you're trying to prevent is smaller than the the gaps in the filter. (laughs) That's that's true. And uh, uh, what was his name? But anyway, I had him on, I think, a couple of times. And, uh, his uh, people that was under him, his veterans, were falling over right and left. Uh, I don't know whatever got settled about it, but I, I read every now and then that the VA is trying to come to some conclusion on the burn pits. But so far, nothing in concrete. Right, and and a, a lot of a lot of um, data is assembled by the VA medical centers and by patient veteran patients who are willing to engage in surveys, and that data is fed to a central uh, location so that uh, VA can track trends in the health experience of returned veterans from various theaters or various areas of war. In fact, if you if you think about an example. Um, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, of course now uh, any veteran of any period who comes down with uh, ALS is presumed to be service-connected for it, uh, regardless of the period or theater of service. Um, And that evolved because the, the question arose as to whether or not veterans of the Persian Gulf War, the original war, 1991, um, were at increased risk for developing ALS. And initial studies of their health experience did not support that conclusion. But as the continues studied and evolved, um, it turned out that the data was suggesting that, no, Persian Gulf veterans are not at greater risk. All veterans are at greater risk. Oh, my. <laughs> and, and that prompted an inquiry from, from a, a senator in Ohio to the secretary, and, this, and that prompted the secretary then to issue, using general rulemaking authority, issue um, a regulatory change saying that uh, we accept um, ALS as a presumptive condition for all active duty veterans of all periods. And so that was that was a good one. That was a good thing. Um, well, I believe so, veterans in general, uh, when they're in the service, you're exposed to a lot, lot of different things. And uh, yeah, uh, you might not know. My <laughs> lands, uh, you, you get to mix in all these different different agents uh, you're exposed to. Uh, uh, you can be hit with one one time, hit with, you know, it don't matter whether it's gasoline, diesel fuel, or uh, jet fuel, or... Uh, what did you clean your rifle with? Yeah. What did you clean your rifle right. with? You know, we all cleaned our rifles. Yeah. Oh, you mean? Yeah. yeah. You better mm-hmm. clean your rifle. <laughs> carbon, carbon tetrachloride. Yeah. Yeah, so I used it in my job in Marine Corps. Yeah, um, yeah. So, well, you know, take it back to the um, nuclear testing. They didn't. Yeah. They didn't know. 
that there were health risks associated with exposure. And um, I, I recall one particular experiment in the Marine Corps. I mean, I wasn't in the Marine Corps at the time, but I recall reading of it. Um, Marine Corps wanted to know how fast they could occupy the uh, field. So they had experiments where they would place Marines in trenches, blow up a nuclear bomb, fly in helicopters, pick up the Marines, and take them to ground zero and see how fast they could do it. (laughs) I would suspect they're all gone. (laughs) Oh, my. Yeah, that... That was um, I, I read a book called um, The Wages of War. It's it's not in print anymore, but you could probably find it on Amazon or something. And uh, these fellows were researching. That, uh, initially, these researchers were trying to understand the government's response to the question of herbicides. And as they continued meeting, interviewing veterans of prior conflicts, uh, they wound up saying, you know, well, this this is more interesting than we realized, and. They wound up running a book covering the relationship between veterans and their government all the way back to the Revolutionary War. <laughs> it was a fascinating read. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you know, Shays' Rebellion, you know. And the, um, the veterans returning from the Revolutionary War were farmers, and they had no money, and they could not plant their crops. And so they were unable to produce income and were jailed in debtor's prison <laughs> because they could not generate an income and pay their bills. Um, a fellow named Daniel Shays uh, organized some of his fellow veterans and surrounded the, the debtor's courthouse <laughs> to prevent them from <laughs> having any more veterans put in prison for their debts. <laughs> Oh, how that's, exciting. Uh, that'd be an interesting book. Oh, I found wait it amazing. Man, yeah. we're, we're, out of, we're out of time. <laughs> I was uh, wondering when you were going to bring that up. <laughs> good grief. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, we're out of time here. Heck, we're I just getting our second wind. Uh, I Appreciate the time you've shared and given us. It's, uh, it's, it's important uh, what you're doing. It's been a good show. You guys give out some really good, very good information. And uh, let's hope it, it helps veterans understand better of what they're dealing with, uh, whether it's on the medical side or the uh, claims side. I would... Uh, Imagine here in the near future, with things going the way they're going, they're going to have to revise the appeals process somehow uh, with something that makes them a little bit of logical sense. Well, that, that's uh, coming in 2019. 2019, uh, that's coming. Very well. Yeah. Let's hope it, it's for the better. I hope. But anyway... Uh, we appreciate uh, you and Dr. Batch coming on, and we look forward to having our, our next show with you. Uh, it'll be really wonderful. So this will be 
Gerald Cook with uh, Jay Basser will be signing off now. It's time for the headed. It's time for the headed. You've been listening to the headed.com blog talk radio show, sponsored by headed.com. All opinions expressed here are the opinions of the individuals appearing on the show and are not the opinions of headed.com or blog talk radio. Tune in next time for another edition of headed.com blog talk radio and the Ask Master Show. Thank you. Bye.